We'll turn with me now in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Our reading of the law this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is at the end of his life, and the people of Israel are about to begin a major shift in their relationship with God. They had known him as the far-off God in Egypt, to whom they cried in their slavery and in their sorrows. They had known him as the God who walked with them in the wilderness by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire who fed them out of his very hand every morning with the manna and the quail, who brought forth water from the rock. But now they are to enter the land of promise, and they will know him as the giver of every good thing, houses they didn't build, farms they didn't plant, crops, vineyards. They shall enjoy every good thing without work, out of the freeness of his blessing. And so Moses on the plains of Moab, right on the shores of the Jordan, speaks to them this book of Deuteronomy and gives them this warning in Deuteronomy 4. We're going to begin with verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly And make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven... You feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be his people, an inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan. And that I would not enter the good land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan. But you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which, made, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Amen. Moses says three times in this passage, take heed, take heed, take heed. Now, if he has to repeat himself that much, he's either a mom or he has something serious to say. He is wanting us to pay attention. Take heed to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. The propensity to idolatry is not external. It is within us. In the words of John Calvin, every human heart is an idol factory. 
a manufacturer of idols. We are, perpen- we are constantly given over to the propensity of making God in our imagination and in our likeness. We want constantly to drag God down from the heavens and to make him more like us and less like he is. And so he warns in this the law that there is nothing which he has made which accurately represents him. There is nothing in the creation, no creature that we should make as his image and likeness. In like manner, Moses reminds them of his own experience, that he, having taken that rock from which the water was to spring and struck it in anger, speaking in arrogance, saying, Must God and I, making for the people of Israel an idol of himself, he was cut off from the land of promise. In like manner, he warns them God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What does consuming fire do to gold and to silver? It melts it down. No idol can stand in his holy presence. No innovation of your mind. No, my friends, we have a God with whom we cannot tolerate sin, selfishness, or our imaginations. Rather... Our God has given us something far better. That we should come to him, not through the things we have made, but through the one he has given us. Jesus Christ. So with him, as the one true image and likeness of God, let's turn to our God in prayer again and pray in this Christ's name. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this warning from Moses that we are so constantly given to worshiping the creature and not the creator. That we are so constantly given to imagining that you are like us, selfish and vengeful, vindictive and cruel. But your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. No, indeed, your ways and thoughts are much higher than ours. You are a God of grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And so we come boldly like children to a father who is ready and able to help us. And we pray to you this morning, delighting in this knowing of God and in this opening of heaven and in this casting of our cares upon you. So we come to you, Father, with joy in our hearts. For you are the God who listens to prayer. For you are the God who answers prayer. The heavens are yours and all that is in them. The earth is yours and all that is in them. The seas are yours and all that is in them. And so you lack nothing. And from you we can seek everything that our flesh needs. That our soul seeks and desires. In you is the satisfaction we are longing for. We pray, Father, that as we cast these cares upon you, we would be persuaded that you care for us and that we would be convinced of the surety of your love. We do pray for Alice's neighbor, for Jan, to discover this great love of God in Christ. We do pray for her as she weeps and as she mourns. 
that Alice and others would come near to her and befriend her and have an open door with which to share with her the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the consolation of Christ. We pray that you would comfort her greatly in your grace. We give you thanks that you heard our prayers for Justin Cardozo and have given him a job. And we pray that you would bless him as he begins tomorrow to train and to learn. Grant him clarity of thought, courage of heart, and skill of hand, that he would do this work well as unto you and not unto men, and that this work would be pleasing to you and good for him. We pray, Father, for the girls' study and give you thanks for their faithfulness Monday by Monday to pray with and for each other, to study the truths of your word and to build up their faith in Jesus. And we pray for them tomorrow night to be blessed again by this gathering. And we pray, Father, also that you would give them wisdom and grace to reorganize and to plan for the next phase, the next study. Bless them richly and give them joy in this that these women together might grow up into Christ and become cornerstones in his palace. We give you thanks that Andres has received this unexpected blessing, that he should receive this card that will allow him to travel abroad. Thank you for this kindness and token of your love. We do pray that you would continue to be with him as he fills out the paperwork and goes through the interviews and grant him favor in the eyes of the government that he might receive his green card in due order. We do thank you for the Nuosus having an opportunity to come here. We pray that he, they would receive the match from Harvard and soon, that they would indeed be confirmed as able to come here. We pray, Father, that you would bring them safely and swiftly here and settle them in, that they would have joy in this congregation, in this community, that we would be a blessing to them and that they would be a blessing to us and that we would see the kingdom of Christ advance in this. We give you thanks for the progress on the ramp, and pray, Father, for yet more progress, that you would bring this project to a completion soon, that indeed the fabrications would go successfully and swiftly, as well as the installation. We pray that it would pass inspection. We pray, Father, that we would be able to open it up and to use it, that we might have this opportunity to minister to those who need a ramp, that they might be welcomed in this house of worship, that they might be befriended by us, the people of God, and that they might come and find Christ and worship him in this place. Father, our hearts yearn for those who are not here, who are watching the live stream. We long to see their face. We long to grip their hands and to hug their shoulders. And so, Father, we pray for this pandemic to pass and the restrictions to lift. We pray for the full fellowship of the saints to be restored. We pray for worship to advance unhindered and undaunted. O oh God, give grace that this day would come quickly. But also, Father, we pray that you would grant us patience and peace to wait upon you until that day. We give you thanks, Father, for those who are struggling in their bodies with mighty illnesses. We give you thanks for their testimony of patient endurance as they strive with daily frustration and fear. We give you thanks for Chris and for Sylvia, for Priscilla and for Caitlin, and pray that you would indeed strengthen their spirits 
that they might remain to us a beautiful testimony of patient endurance and of faith upon Christ and trust in his care. We pray that you would strengthen their bodies and indeed bring healing. We pray especially, Father, that the light of their testimony would be most evident and that we all would bless your name for the way you are working in them and through them. We give you thanks for our deacon, his diligence, his excellence, his competence. We pray especially for him to be blessed with peace and with joy in his work. But we also pray that you would raise up more deacons, that you would add to that board, that you would grant to us as a congregation a clarity of thought and of heart, a unity of vote that we might bring up in May others to serve with Kyle. We pray, Father, that you would grant us grace in the process, that we would not become merely fixated on producing deacons, but indeed we would delight in the time of prayer and of preparation, seeing that it too is for the sanctification and building up of the church, so that we might become more like Christ. We give you thanks, O God, for Dr. Spear, and for decades of diligent service to the glory of our King. We pray for his widow to know and to have much comfort in Christ. We pray for her to have healing and peace as she looks to Jesus. We pray for his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, that they would walk in the ways of Christ, that they would weep freely, for it is right, and yet, Father, that they would mourn with a hope, a tremendous hope that as they enter into this valley of tears, he has yet ascended into the glorious, endless worship. We pray, Father, that this would be captivating to the rest of us, that we, the congregation of the Lord, would weep with them and offer them comfort and likewise have the hope of heaven enlarged in our hearts, that we too who travel in this dark world might stare ahead to the shining dawn of the coming of Christ and know that it is nearer with every passing hour. And so we pray most fervently, Father, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and hasten the coming of heaven, for that is the kingdom to which we belong and for which we hope. We pray that the kingdom would come now in this hour, that your word would be preached with authority, with clarity, that your word would be heard with humility and obedience, that indeed your spirit would stir within us true saving faith and cause us to delight in the Jesus we now hear and see set before us. For these things we ask in his name. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 97. I know it's a little confusing for our peace, but I did say Bibles, not Psalters. Psalm 97. We're going to read this to provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is from Acts 17. So in a moment, we're going to look over at Acts 17. But first, we're going to read from Psalm 97.
Psalm 97. Hear now the word of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous. And gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. And give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Amen. The psalmist is rejoicing. You see that in the first verse and in the last verse. He's rejoicing specifically in the reign of God. That he rules over everything. He calls the earth to rejoice with him. But then he turns somewhat unexpectedly, at least for our mentality about God. To an expression of God that doesn't particularly bring us joy. I mean, some of us it does. Have you seen the clouds and thick darkness form? Have you seen the bolts of lightning strike the sky and felt the thunder rattle the windows? No offense, but I don't mean your little New England thunderstorms. I mean the big Midwestern thunderstorms. Have you heard the boom where you can feel the shockwaves vibrating your ribcage? That fury of the almighty power of God in which the mountains melt before him, the earth sees and trembles. So great is the majesty and glory of God. But as the psalmist here concludes, it would be just silly to try and contain him in rock. Silver or gold. How could one take a God of such infinitude, of such immensity, of such incomprehensibility, and squeeze him into an idol we have made? And yet we constantly do so. And yet we constantly are trying to bring God down and reduce him to our level. Instead, the psalmist gives us the right response. And says, no, no, the right way to handle a God who is far beyond any of you is to not make little of him in idols, but to make much of him in worship. Rejoice in him. Delight in him. Be overwhelmed by him to the joy of your soul. With this truth in mind, turn over to Acts 17. Acts 17. 
We will see Paul employ this same logic in Acts 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 34. Acts uh, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, down through verse 34. Acts 17, 16 through 34, hear again the word of the Lord. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because... He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him. And believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, 
and others with them. Amen and amen. Last summer, I was sitting on the back porch at the parsonage. I was admiring the breakfast routine of my backyard companions. The fluffy-tailed squirrels were racing each other back and forth on the power lines between the houses. They didn't seem to be making much progress in getting breakfast going. There were birds sitting in the juniper and sitting in the white pine and going back and forth between the branches, singing to each other their breakfast song. Then there was one curious little bird who caught my attention. He was down in the yard all by himself. He had long, skinny, spindly legs for a little bird. And he was wobbling around on them very mightily as if somebody had messed up and put popsicle sticks on an oversized belly. And as he was wobbling and wiggling through the grass, its green fingers tickling his brown tummy, his long neck would stretch out and he would poke his head down into the grass and his pointy little beak would grab. I don't know if he was getting grubs or seeds or what, but he was the one who was doing a far better job of getting breakfast than anyone else. It struck me as a truly comical situation. Those energetic birds and squirrels singing and playing, but not eating a bit. This goofy, comical little bird bobbing along through the grass, eating his fill to his heart's content. I was so struck by it that I sat down and I wrote a poem that I'm not going to quote for you because I didn't bring it. Paul comes into this great city of Athens, full of energy and vitality, full of wisdom and philosophy. And they look at Paul and they call him a little bird. This little wobbly figure bumbling around the marketplace, picking at seeds here and there, having not the great energetic wisdom of the Greeks, having one little idea. Jesus has been raised from the dead. But of course, my friends, before we side with the Greeks and all of their wisdom and all of their learning and all of their energy, we should remember what Jesus teaches about little seeds. That should we have the faith of a mustard seed, we would remove mountains. You see, my friends, the good news for us in this text is that it is Jesus alone who brings us to God. It is but a small idea. It is but a small intellectual idea. It is a simple truth grasped by infants, grasped by fools. But Paul reminds us that such foolishness as this is indeed the power of God for salvation. My friends, Jesus alone brings you to God. So this morning, turn to him. Turn to Christ. Now let's think about this a little bit together as we go through the text. Notice in verses 16 and 17, Paul has begun an adventure in Athens alone. You see, his missionary team has broken up over the various trials of this missionary journey. Luke has gone with them as far as Philippi, but there he remained. The team of three went on to Thessalonica, where Timothy was left. They advanced then to Berea, where Silas is left. 
At long last, stripped of his companions and friends, Paul finds himself in Athens alone. And it says in verse 16 that he waited there, as is strategic and wise, for someone who has been suddenly isolated from his missionary team. But he cannot keep silent. Perhaps he is there to rest up. Perhaps he is there to strategically plan. But whatever Paul ought to have been doing, he couldn't resist engaging. You see, in verse 16, his spirit is provoked when he saw that the city is given over to idols. In the Greek, Luke says it is full of idols. There is an abundance of idols. There are idols on every corner, and it provokes Paul. That is, he is full of a paroxysm of anger. There is an outburst within him of rage, and he cannot resist engaging with the Athenians. So he begins in verse 17 to engage in the way he normally does. He reasons with the Jews in the synagogue. But Paul is so antagonistic to Athenian idolatry that he is not content to contend with the Jews in the synagogue. Rather, he advances on new territory and pioneers a new missionary adventure. He goes into the marketplace and daily grapples with the everyday Athenians. He goes into their market stalls and into their shops. He walks up and down their streets and he combats with their idolatry. Friends, Paul's example is instructive to us in two ways. First, let us be angry at idolatry. There is, I fear, a great danger for us as Christians That our relative isolation from the costs of our sin, thanks to the relative prosperity of our society, the relative peace of our society, we ignorantly, arrogantly, selfishly pretend that idolatry has no cost. And it is a lie. My friends, there are victims for those who bow down at the idols of sexual immorality. There are victims for the pornography that is saturating our society. There are victims for our love of convenience and comfort that is so intense we would kill a human being to not be inconvenienced. To escape the fear and the trauma and the terror that is real and needs compassion and help and yet cannot be solved with murder. There are idols on every corner of our street. It's easy to pick on the big society ones, isn't it? Should we come a little closer to home? Those of us who worship the fridge, feeding our bellies with everything and anything we find. Those of us who worship the bottle and drink deep the intoxication to the corruption of our minds and our hearts. Those of us who love peace and quiet and ignore other humans in their dire need. Those of us who walk through this society like the first two journeymen in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, as far to the other side of the road as we can possibly get, to escape the consequences of being a responsible human being who actually loves others. Yes, we have idols, my friends, lots and lots of idols. We are a city given over to idols, full of idols, and must we not react with anger? Should not our spirit be intensified with an outburst of rage? 
That's the first. Let us be angry at the idols of our hearts. But secondly, my friends, let us see clearly the right, righteous rage and its response. He does not take up placards. He does not protest in the streets. He does not assemble a mob. Those are the great American traditions. That's how we solve our political problems. Get the biggest crowd, shout the biggest slogans. Not Paul. No, the gospel drives and animates him. His rage, his fury, I cannot keep silent. So he races to the streets of the marketplace. He races to the pews of the synagogue. And he preaches Christ crucified for sinners. That's what holy anger brings forth in the heart of a Christian. An increase in evangelism. He cannot stomach the injustice in his society. So what does he do? He preaches Christ. He doubles his preaching of Christ. I cannot be content to simply preach Christ in the synagogue. Nope, I've got to get to the marketplace and into the streets. This, my friends, is how we answer the holy rage we ought to feel against this world's idolatry. By wanting to reason about Christ By wanting to present the truth of Jesus Christ. He's the only answer. Peace is found in Christ. Justice is found in Christ. Reconciliation with God and humanity is found only in Christ. The right response to a righteous rage over idolatry is not to tear down the idols first. But to build up Christ first. Let us preach Christ. But let us also beware, my friends, that preaching Christ is a confusing response to our society. Notice in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, the Athenians are bewildered by this choice that Paul should come among them and begin to preach Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. They begin as Epicureans and Stoics in verse 18. We've heard of these names before. They've become part of our pop culture. The Epicurean is the one who has decided that the very center post of the human existence is pleasure and that all your life should be built around pleasure. Now, in a very American way, we have reduced their definition to pleasure as food and drink and, you know, that bodily satisfaction, which is not actually what the Epicureans meant, but that's a lecture for another day. The Stoics, on the other hand, built their society around self-control, discipline, being a well-ordered, well-structured human. These, of course, stand as polar opposites. The Epicurean says that a life well-lived is a life given to pleasure. The Stoic says that a life well-lived is a life given to self-sacrifice and to discipline. And they both look at Paul and say, Which one are you? You see, in their worldview, either way, whether it's self-indulgence or self-discipline, the creature that stands at the center of their universe is self. And Paul doesn't fit. Paul isn't on their timeline. Paul isn't within their philosophical purview. They say, who is this babbler 
That's the metaphor. This, this little bird who goes around picking up seeds and, and idly spilling ideas. He hasn't this great worldview like us Greeks. He is a fool. He is confusing. He lacks the wisdom the Greeks long for. He lacks the well-ordered, self-centered life they proclaim. Indeed, they announce in verse 18, he proclaims foreign deities. Not the self, not the thinker, but indeed foreign gods. They believe that Jesus and the resurrection are being held up as divine partners. Jesus, the God, and Anastasia, that is the Greek word for resurrection, as the goddess the divine consort. And so out of their curiosity, out of their confusion, we'll see how long this throat holds on. They take him to the Areopagus and say, we want to know more of this new doctrine. Notice the use of words in verse 19. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know what these things mean. This Greek word for strange is not just foreign or unknown or unusual. It actually has a negative bite. They are strange. That is, they are alarming. They are disturbing. This new doctrine is something we're not sure we want. Luke notes in verse 21 that this is a curious group of people who love new ideas, who love investigating new things. But this is a new thing that they're a little nervous about. This new doctrine seems threatening. And from this, my friends, we must recover our conviction that we are the single most dangerous thing to this society and this civilization. For we do preach something strange. We do preach something new. A doctrine that is alien and indeed antagonistic to the ways human civilization has been built, that we should preach Christ crucified for sinners. That we should preach the cross as the way of glory, as the way of true humanity. That we should not live either for self-indulgence or for self-discipline, but rather we should live for Christ. We should live for the glory of the crucified King. We should preach Jesus a man raised from the dead and ruling as God at the right hand of the Most High. This is, in fact, the most strange thing you could possibly preach. It is so alien to the idolatry to which we are prone. It is so alien to the idolatry to which we love. We want God to be like us. I mean, what is our response to injustice? Vigilantism. Arm the hero in the white hat. Send him forth to destroy, to conquer, to overcome. I grew up on John Wayne movies. I know that story well. The lone gunman, or the gunman with his posse, facing down all the bad guys one by one, bringing justice. My friends, it's a great story. It's not the gospel. Injustice is solved through the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
Indeed, the healing of our hurts is found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this is a strange thing for us to preach. But Paul preaches it very boldly. In verse 22, he arrives at the Areopagus and he addresses the great assembly of philosophers, men of Athens. I perceive you are very religious. This could be a very negative term. It could be interpreted, you are very superstitious. You worship everything under the sun. You worship everything that moves. It is perhaps Paul mocking his audience. It would be rather impolitic to do so, but it could be the meaning. It could also be a very positive statement. I see that you are very serious about your religion. Allow me to contribute to that seriousness. In this way, perhaps he is inviting his audience to engage with him. Either way, he points them to an altar he has found on the streets of Athens, in which it is inscribed, this altar receives offerings and sacrifices to the unknown God. And Paul says, let me tell you about a God you don't know. Now, he doesn't mean the specific God that was imagined by that altar. That would be rather idolatrous and blasphemous, which Paul is trying to get rid of. He means the concept of unknown. I'm going to declare to you a God that has not yet been revealed to you. He is unknown to you. And Paul makes concerning this God three assertions, three truth claims that are essential for them if they are to know and worship this true God. First, in verses 24 and 25, Paul will teach them that this God has made everything. And therefore, he should not be worshipped with the things we make. The God who has made everything ought not to be worshipped with the things we make. See, in verse 24, he made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. So he does not dwell in temples we have made. You cannot possibly claim that God belongs on this mountaintop when he has made all the mountaintops. You cannot claim that God alone is worshipped in this little valley when he has made all the valleys. You cannot claim that this one sacred river is in fact that alone sacred river of God when he has made all the rivers. He who has made everything cannot possibly be contained to being worshipped in only one place. This is, of course, an extraordinary sermon from a Jew whose people has existed as preaching the temple in Jerusalem as the one place of God to be worshipped. But Paul has grasped the consequences of Christ's coming. That indeed it is no longer that we are shackled and chained to temples and to the works of our hands. Let me make this point a little more relevant to us. It is exciting that next week the governor will let us have 50% capacity in this building. Do you know what happens when the week after that he decides we can have 0% capacity in this building? We worship God somewhere else. This isn't his temple. While we have this building, let's rejoice in it. Let's enjoy it. Let's take good care of it. But my friends, he's not bound to this address. He can be found in any home on Antrim Street. He can be found in the backyards of Medford and everywhere else. My friends, we need not worship him here. We can gather somewhere else. 
There is such freedom in the coming of Christ to acknowledge that the maker of everywhere can be worshipped anywhere that the church so gathers. In like manner, in verse 25, he teaches that he is not worshipped with our hands. That is, with the things we bring. That the sacrifices and the offerings, that those things that we carry into the temple, they are not sanctifying to God. They are not the things he needs. He who has given all life does not need our living sacrifices. He who has given all breath does not need our praises exhaled from our lungs. He who has given all things cannot possibly be repaid with anything we have made. Perhaps you've heard the old joke, I think I've told it from this pulpit before, that there was the proud scientist who discovered how to make life and came to God one day and said, I have discovered how to make life. I can do anything you can do. And God said, all right, show me. The scientist bent down, picked up a handful of dirt, and God said, no, 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 get your own dirt. My friends, there is nothing we make that has not come from God. There is nothing with which we can worship that was not his gift to us first. He who has made all things should not be made small in our eyes as if we could make for him something he needed Something he wanted. He is complete in and of himself, needing nothing, lacking nothing. Indeed, friends, this is not how he is to be worshipped. Let us put off our addiction to the earthly things to which we suppose have divinity. Let us put off our hopes and anticipations that indeed something earthly should give to us what God alone can give that we should have the fullness of our fatherly fellowship beating in our hearts. But to answer that pregnant question, so if it's not temples, if it's not our sacrifices and offerings, then what is it? Well, Paul makes them wait. I won't make you wait. The answer is Jesus, of course. My friends, we need not the temple, we have Christ. We need not the blood of bulls and goats, we have Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, says the song. What's the next line? Simply to the cross I cling. My friends, it is Christ. He's made temples obsolete. He's made sacrifices and offerings extinct. We come with Christ. We come in the name of Christ. We come in the righteousness of Christ. We come in the holiness of Christ. Christ is what brings us to God. He is what we need. Paul will make this point again by pointing to humanity. Notice then in verses 26 through 29, Paul teaches them secondly that this God, this unknown God, is not only the maker of everything, he is the maker of everyone. He has made all of humanity. And Paul strains this point through two ideas. First, he has made all of humanity from one blood. There is unity in humanity. We are but one race. The color of our hair, the color of our skin, the color of our eyes do nothing to our humanity. We are but one humanity. What is more, our penchant for this depravity or that depravity does not make us more or less human. Let us beware, my friends. Our sins are not more sanctified than others. There is indeed an equality and a unity throughout humanity. 
that we together are of one blood, of one covenant creature, having a union with God that descends from him. He quotes from their philosophers and poets, saying, we are his offspring, in him we live and move and have our being. He says this is what it is to be human, to be united in the likeness and image of God. But secondly, he points to our diversity. He says in verse 27, that he has divided, sorry, it's verse 26, that he has divided us by times and places. That though humanity is but one creature, though humanity is but one race, we live in different times and places. Some of us have cars and some of us had horses. Some of us have running water and most of us wished we had. But all of humanity is separated by these epochs and eras. So too we are separated by boundaries and geography and language and culture. There is this intense diversity among us. We are wholly different and yet wholly the same. This diversity in unity and unresolved tension, Paul says, exists to drive us groping for an answer. That humanity, in looking at itself, should begin to wonder, where comes this majesty? What is the fountain source of this diversity and unity? What is this man, this, this creature that walks the earth, to walk like Adam and to say, what is this woman that has been brought to me? This stunning creature in the heart of creation Paul says, drives us to seek God and to conclude in verse 29 that the things we find in the earth, gold, silver, and stone, are themselves poor reflections of the divine nature. If we should see such majesty in humanity, then we should surely conclude that the things humans make cannot possibly communicate the divine nature. Divinity is not revealed in our art and devising. It does not come to us in what we craft, in what we master, in what we mold. Our innovation is not the source of revelation. So what then is it? Again, it is Jesus. My friends, let me strain for a moment a point that we often lose when we read the scriptures. The second commandment is not forbidding us from having false gods. That's the first commandment. The second commandment forbids idols. That is our vain imaginings about God. The first commandment is who you worship. The second commandment is how you worship. In this way, idolatry, strictly speaking in the scriptures, is not simply a false god, but a false conception about God, a false innovation about God, a false imagination about God. We don't find him in our imaginations. We find him in the face of Jesus Christ. We find him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The divine nature is not revealed in what we have made. It is revealed in what God has made. The man, Jesus Christ. To this point, Paul launches himself here at the climax. 
Truly, he says in verse 30, this third point about God, He has made all things and should not be restricted to temples. He has sent His Son Jesus and should not be restricted to idols. But instead, here in verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. He has passed over your temple worship. He has passed over your idol worship. He has dealt with you in grace and in kindness, giving you far more than you deserve. But now He calls to you. But now He commands you, come, every man, everywhere, repent. Turn from your imaginations. Turn from your innovations. Turn from your works, your self-righteousness. Turn instead to the one, verse 31, the man whom he has ordained. Anyone got any guesses as to what the Greek word for ordained is? Any guesses as to who this would be? The New King James puts it with an N. I'm sorry, with a capital M, man. This is Christ, the Christ, the one anointed, that they should come in righteousness to judge the world. There is but one man who has been raised from the dead. There is but one man in whom divinity has come to us. There is but one man who brings us to God in peace and reconciliation. And he has given us the definitive assurance that this man shall succeed in salvation. He raised him from the dead. At this point, Paul's sermon ends. It's the great climax. It's the great moment. Here he's made his point beautifully, wisely, winsomely. He's laid out the argument. If you understood divinity, you wouldn't bottle him up in a temple. If you understood the greatness of God, you wouldn't make an image of him in gold or silver. You would know that it must be found in something else. It's found in this man, Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. The judge, he finally gets to Jesus. He finally gets to the good news. And Luke's story just chops. It's like, come on, Luke, belabor the point. But instead, Luke turns us to their response. For in verse 32, as soon as they hear of the resurrection of the dead, some mock. There is no appetite in this audience to understand what is going on. They mock. This is a strange thing. That a man who is dead should be preached as God who is alive. That a man who was crucified should now be understood as king and head of the universe. This is a strange thing. And they mock it. While others, with that irrepressible Athenian curiosity, say, we will hear you more about this. Just as painful as the harsh ridicule is perhaps the cold indifference. Here has Paul served to them in power and wisdom the best news they have ever heard. And some laugh and some shrug. And these are truly vile responses. But some, in verse 34, join with him and believe. Dionysius and Damaris, a man and a woman, 
and others with them, are united to the church, and the Athenian church is born. And here comes the household of faith, a new humanity conceived through faith in Jesus Christ, the one raised from the dead, the true God in the flesh revealed to them. What an exciting moment. Why should Luke compress it? Because, my friends, he once again is bringing us to the burning question in the book of Acts. It is not, what did those of Athens do with Christ? The question is, what will you do with Christ? What will you do, my friends? There is no God in the things you make. There is no God in the things you imagine. There is no God in the religions we have invented as humans. There is but one God, the maker of all things, the caretaker of all things, and He has come in Christ. Will you turn to Him? Will you this morning mock Him? Will you shrug your shoulders and say, that's interesting, maybe I'll hear you again next week. This is the call to us, friends, that our faith should be in this Christ, this resurrected man. He alone brings us to God. Dear friends, Jesus alone brings us to God. So this morning, turn to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this good news that Paul preached so powerfully so long ago. And we give you thanks that by the power of your spirit, his message lingers long in the lives of the saints. That from Sabbath to Sabbath, this scriptures and so many other scriptures should preach Christ powerfully and clearly. And we pray this day, O God, that what we have heard would settle into our souls and transform us into believers. Would indeed strengthen those of us who believe that we might come and confess Christ. That we might grow in our understanding of Christ. That we might find him powerful. Almighty to save, sweet and compassionate, drawing near to heal and to comfort. Father, give you thank- we give you thanks today for this good news in Christ, which we have heard. And pray your blessing upon it to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.